am your host of a pin and a napkin podcast, the weekly coaching clinic that you can carry around with you in your pocket. Welcome to episode number 62, and I am really, really excited to have our guest on this week. I have been a fan of this coach from afar for a long, long time, Mike Dunlap, who uh, just recently, last week, coach, got uh, got a new gig up in Milwaukee and uh, haven't had a chance to congratulate you on the new job, coach. So here's a, a formal congratulations from a pen and a napkin. Well, thank you. Well, I'm, I'm very fortunate to be able to be with the Bucks. Yes, yes, a good place to land. Very good place to land right now. So, uh, yeah. Well, but before we get into it with Coach Dunlap, uh, again, we want to recognize our sponsor for our podcast, COSAC Chiropractic, located at 14450 Eagle Run Drive here in Omaha, Nebraska. Coaches, if you have an athlete who is struggling with balanced neck or spinal issues, have them go see COSAC Chiropractic. You can check out their practice at COSACChiro.com. That's K-O-S-A-K-C-H-I-R-O.com. Or making an appointment by giving them a call at 402-964-0300. Just be sure to let them know that a pen and a napkin sent you. Follow us on Twitter at a pen and a napkin. We try to put out daily coaching tidbits on the Twitter handle, so be sure to follow us there. If you're listening, obviously you're on SoundCloud or iTunes, so download, rate, review, give the podcast five stars so that we can move up in the rankings and help coaches hone their craft. And as always, email us uh, if you have any questions, comments, suggestions, or ideas. Email me at a pen and a napkin at gmail.com. Uh, coach, uh, like I said, congratulations on the new job. Uh, you know, it's it's a quick hire, or you get hired, and then it's it's time to get going here. Uh, I believe it's, uh, you guys start practice on Monday or Tuesday of next week, something like that? December 6th, the NBA uh, put in some things that, the whole staff and players have to take care of on the COVID side of things. So, but most everybody will hit it on December 6th. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, well, coach, I'm very familiar with your coaching journey. Like I said, I've, I've been a, uh, an admirer from afar. We, we have a mutual friend in, in Mike Power who you worked with for, I believe it was four years at Metro State. And uh, I've known Mike. Uh, Mike is definitely one of the biggest influences in my life, if not the biggest, uh, on the basketball side of things. So, uh, But for the folks that don't know uh, a lot about you, uh, take a couple minutes here and, and uh, you know tell us about your coaching journey, which has been a, a tremendous journey, in, including overseas as well. So um, tell us about your journey, Coach. Well, basically, the, it's a long one, so I'll, I'll you know, save everybody the boredom of listening. But I started uh, as uh, a graduate assistant and worked my way up at Loyola LMU, Loyola Marymount, and I played there back in 80. And then the journey just took me to Iowa as uh, working for George Raveling. And we had a, a really good team with B.J. Armstrong and all those guys, uh, Roy Marble, oh, yeah. uh, et cetera. Oh, yeah. yeah, and then we went out to SC, and they had uh, struggled, and so they hired a coach, and they kind of had to go from soup to nuts to to get that thing elevated. I was there for four years, and I took a Division three job, um, and which was really good for me because I had all these notes, but I didn't know how to coach. <laughs> and so... To be there for five years, and we took a program that had gone from scholarship to non-scholarship. So all the players left, and so when I got there, I was like their third choice and maybe fourth. And a guy took the job, but then a week later walked away, 
And uh, for the first couple of years, you could understand why we had to reconfigure things, but we ended up being very good. And mm-hmm. then uh, I got, I was going over to see a good friend of mine who ended up being a national coach, Brian Gorgian, and I played for his father at Loyola. But the three years internationally of coaching, really uh, the value of the three ball, which was over there, and also, um, uh, you know, dribble drive. Mm-hmm. That because you're running against teams that were uh, smaller, so that they they had to you know go with smaller lineups and 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 so you know you become wherever you're at as far as immersion, and that really helped me a lot. Um, and also pick and roll at that level was really coming in, and there were former NBA players or guys just trying to get into the NBA. Uh, that were in that league. But as a college coach, everything in those days was motion and <clears throat> set plays into motion, et cetera. But over there, you know, uh, pick and roll was really big. So I had to ramp up on that. Mm-hmm. And so that was really, really good. Yeah. And the exposure internationally, having to coach for your dinner is a whole <laughs> different gig. And, and uh, that's, yeah, that was a different experience. Yeah. But anyway, came back in Metro State for nine years. And again, the program wasn't in great shape. Um, and so we ended up uh, winning a couple of national championships and stayed in that top 10. You know, you know, after we got the national championship in our third year, we were one of the better programs because of our players. And we were getting a lot of guys uh, from Australia, went over there before St. Mary's was doing it because I lived over there, had a ready-made connection, and those Australians were very, very good. So mm-hmm. that in Northern California kids and then a smattering of kids out of the Midwest, we, we used a different kind of recruiting. But anyway, uh, after that nine years, I got an ass to go across the street uh, because of just paying attention and getting to know people through my journeys, uh, and I was in the NBA. You know, mm-hmm. you go from division two, the NBA, it's a big jump because of language, speed of game, and uh, everybody's different. And it's like a, a, a league of Maseratis, if you will. Yeah. You know, that's what you're dealing with. And, and so that was really good. And then Arizona, and, and I'm going to stop there. I, I, but I just took a journey where I tried to take high-risk jobs as an assistant and or head coach where I knew I would learn a lot. And mm-hmm. You know, and, and so always living on the edge um, in terms of the jobs I took and was fortunate enough to get any job, let me say that. But, um, you know, uh, my last stint was with at Loyola Marymount, who since the Gathers and Kimball era hadn't been very good. And, and we our, our graph line fluctuated in wins and losses. Mm-hmm. And um, I couldn't, and our staff, and we, we couldn't get it to sustain a high level um, and came into the league, obviously, of Gonzaga and other St. Mary's that are, were already established. So yeah. it's a big lift, but it was a really good experience. The people at LMU were tremendous, and they'll get it done. I think we left them in pretty good shape this year with talent. And uh, I was minding my own business down here in San Diego, and got a call from Mike Budenholzer, and we just, it was all basketball talk. And then mm-hmm. one thing led to another, and uh, 
you know, uh, say a couple of weeks ago, I signed a contract to be with them for the year. And, and again, very lucky. And yeah. when you're in the business, as long as I've been in it, uh, you have a lot of really good friends. And I've known Mike since um, he was 21. Mm-hmm. And obviously his, his nickname is Bud. But I've known Bud uh, since I was 21. And we would see each other periodically, especially when he was with the Spurs. Mm-hmm. He was there for a long time before he jumped in in Atlanta. But uh, he's uh, fresh, smart, and has a reputation for being a player's coach. And, and he's all of that and then some. So it's good. It's good opportunity to be with his staff and everybody. So I'm looking forward to learning again. Well, plus, you know, go, going from such a um, – up and down climate in San Diego to balmy Milwaukee in January and February ought to be a privilege in and of itself, Coach. Well, there's, I, I, everybody is kind of saying, "What are you doing with, <laughs> the, with that part?" <laughs> and I said, "I said, check the resume. I was born and raised in Fairbanks, Alaska, and Milwaukee has nothing on Fairbanks, Alaska." <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I, you know, the matter of transitioning from one building to the next, or, or hustling to your car. Um, I'm not, you know, I just have to get to the film room. Yeah, <laughs> so ex- I'm lucky. Exactly, exactly. Well, I uh, I didn't realize. Um, I I grew up in Iowa, and uh, man, I worshipped. Uh, I was in junior high when uh, B.J. Armstrong and Roy Marble and all those guys, and and of course, uh, of course, uh, Coach Orr had it going pretty well by that point at Iowa State with. Uh, Barry Stevens and Jeff Grayer and Jeff Hornacek was coming in there around that time and just a lot of really really good basketball in that state and I'm I'm still my, the 13 year old in me is still broken hearted and I know it was a lot of your players that Dr. Tom took over that lost that game to UNLV in that Elite Eight game in 87 um, yeah. so uh, you're, you're tugging at my childhood heartstrings with a couple of those George Raveling stories coach yeah, no, and, and the thing about Iowa, as you know, in the Midwest, is that it's pretty much a condensed area. These are university towns, and mm-hmm. everybody is depending on those universities economically, and et cetera. And mm-hmm. so it creates a spree de corps that you try to describe to other people, but even I was in the Big East, uh, but the, I, I would unequivocally say that you know, whether it's Minnesota and Wisconsin going at it or Iowa and, say, Illinois mm-hmm. or what have you, those rivalries are as intense as you'll find. And people, when they do get, unfortunately, divorced, they'll they'll fight over those tickets that they've had <laughs> for 30 years in the family, you know? Yeah, exactly. So, no, it, and then I, I remember the Hawkeyes were rocking and rolling football-wise, they had a very famous coach there just passed a little while ago, Hayden Fry. Oh, you bet. The stand-up and, tight end. Right. And and to, to go to that spectacle of a game and see all the trucks pull up that were black and gold, and, you know, they had gone through, uh, this is 17 years of losing uh, in terms of record, yet they had never failed to have a sellout. That's a special kind of fan. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, and obviously Hayden probably got all that uh, turned around. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. So, well, Coach, um, you, you kind of uh, uh, 
alluded to it. You're, you, I, I believe the phrase you, you said, high risk jobs. And, and as I was going through your, your stuff, that, that's one thing I picked up on is uh, you very rarely in your career stepped into a, you know, ready-made situation. Uh, there, there, it, there was kind of a, a rebuild uh, that needed to be done. And I think you kind of answered that question already, but I'm going to ask it again, maybe in a different way. Was it, was it a conscientious decision to kind of be attracted to those rebuild situations? And if so, why? Or was it just kind of, it's just the way the cards fell? I was the ugly duckling. I had a resume <laughs> that, that was Swiss cheese when I started out. And I, you know, um, you know the, the centers of influence it turned out to be very powerful. I was a new old guy. I was a wooden guy. And they were in my life as far as uh, mentors. And then, obviously, the guys that, that, that brought me through the business were connected. And so... My point is that um, one of the things that stood out, there's a servant coach in the NBA named Tim Gergovich. And oh, yep. He's known quietly as the best assistant that ever lived in the NBA. And he's a very humble man, and you would not like me saying that. But mm-hmm. um, I was raised in many ways by Coach Gerg uh, when they were running those seasons back-to-back-to-back at UNLV. Mm-hmm. And he came out of Pittsburgh. But anyway, Coach Gerg, we were working in the gym you know, over at UNLV, and, and I was at USC, and I was going over there for their weekend camps. And he said, when are you going to take that notebook that you carry around and put it into practice? And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, yeah, you got all these theories, but it takes four to five years as a head coach anywhere to learn what you stand for and what you believe. And he says, go park that notebook and take a job anywhere, coach, be a head coach. And so... I was at SC and had an opportunity to coach at Cal Lutheran and I jumped on it because it made sense to me that I had, you know, a lot of experience as an assistant and you mm-hmm. have all the answers as an assistant. But Absolutely. when you become a head coach, that, yep. that's a whole different deal. So, um, the, the yeah, biggest 18 and, inch and jump just, in, in, in measured yeah. length. Yep. Yeah. And, and I would say it's, you know, that 18 inches, each inch is a thousand miles. So, <laughs> you know, you, you, you do all of that factoring, but it was the best thing I ever did is just to get in there and, and muck around and make mistakes um, and and be really terrible at what I was doing and it get a lot better. Unfortunately, some players had to deal with me not being very good, but, um, you know, over time you figure out what you believe in it you know, I, I think my journey should be a journey of hope for all of those uh, coaches, both female and male, that, you know, I didn't really have a, a big sponsor, you know, and I, I wasn't a, a, an All-American, and I, you know, I had this resume, like I said, it was paper mache in many ways, and so I just put my head down and went to work, mm-hmm. and, you know, and I could, I could work hard and learn, and I knew I didn't what I didn't know. And so I, I would encourage everybody that feels like they're moving the mop and doing all of that. All the assistants that have worked for me, they ask me, you know, and tell me certain things about their dreams. And I said, the, the trick there is to always hold on to the mop. And I go, what do you mean coach? And I, and I said, it's important that you understand that it'll all come your way 
but it might be 21 years. It mm-hmm. might be 16 years. It might be, and, and that's not in many ways the coaching tree or the generations, you know, delay of gratification. Uh, it's not necessarily gratification denied, the old cliche, but it's really important that that you are purposeful in waiting for whatever chair you're covet and that you learn the business. And I was a camp guy and I was going all over the country doing things that forced me. I worked for a company out of Ohio called the shot doctor company. And there's a guy yep. named Ed Stahl yep. who, who owned the company. And I worked for Ed Stahl mm-hmm. and they would put you on a plane and fly you to Hoboken or it didn't matter. And someplace in Texas, you get off the plane, somebody strange picks you up and then they put you in their house. The high school coach does. And for three days you're teaching shooting and you have 50 kids who've never seen you before. And the coach is observing you and he's got his assistants helping and you, you have to do your own station work and you're, you're the hub, you're the beginning, middle and end of a three day camp. I try that on and I would, you know, you, you better be entertaining. You better be good at what you do because a lot of these coaches were grizzled guys that mm-hmm. paid good money to have you come in and teach shooting. And my point is, is that when you're on the racer's edge or a high risk, it forces you to be creative, innovative. It forces you to do more with less because a lot of times, you know, you, you, you don't have the perfect point or you don't have a big or you don't. And, that's why I think high school coaches are so special because when you go and you see what they're doing with out of bounds plays or side OBs and uh, they're one of the better coaches in their league, you could learn a lot. Mm-hmm. And I always tell, I, I, I always tell all coaches that they need to find the best high school coach in their area and go watch him or her coach and then get a notebook out because They've been there, done that, and have had a set of problems that are highly unique. And you're going to find an optimistic person. You're going to find a person who really uh, knows how to bleed publicly and, and do it with great honor and dignity. You're going to find a person that's humble. You're going to, it's just uncanny. Uh, you know, what you're living on the edge, what that'll do for your, your teaching, because it's about teaching. It's not about coaching, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and studying Madeline Hunter out of UCLA, who essentially is credited for the practice plan, you know, but it, it was a classroom plan. And then you go to Frederick Jones, somebody who wrote uh, positive uh, tools of education and, and teaching, um, you know, and you go to these people who, who are invested in methodology. And now, because you're dealing with an attention span that's different with the modern-day athlete, mm-hmm. you've got to do things in sound bites, and you've got to learn how to praise prompt and leave and go to the next thing because players don't want to do what we learned to do, and that was dry run everything and, you know, take let the coach have you know, five, 10 minutes of explanation. That does not work in this day and age. You've got to put them on the move and you've got to be able to have verbals that make sense, that create word pictures in their minds. And you've got to do a lot of things, but I would encourage all coaches to study teaching methodology and also any parenting course is going to render you humble first when you go to a parenting course. But what that's going to do is put in your toolbox psychologically what a lot of children dash teenagers deal with 
from the family tree. And when you can't get somebody to do something, if you go underneath the hood, you're going to find that there was a problem in the home. Mm-hmm. And when you make that connection with the student athlete, they'll never forget you. It's indelible because you're involved in the good stuff. And that's helping a young man or a young woman find out who they are and how to correct some problems that were created that the coach had nothing to do with. But if you're just sitting there thinking they're going to show up and be a player and, and, and you know, that they aren't going to pout and their body language is not what you want, you're, you're sadly mistaken. And it's your job to help that young person correct that behavior. And that's coaching. And if somebody who's sitting at a clinic thinks that that's not coaching, then, you know, and it's all about writing down drills. I don't ever think that it's good to take somebody else's drills and put them into your practice. You can take one or two, but it's more important to understand that there are six tried and true characteristics of a great drill. Create your own to the offense you want to run because you don't have the perfect point card. You know, and Mm -hmm. I've heard guys say that, you know, well, he's not a point because he can't shoot it, but the poor high school coach, that's all he's got. Yep. But yeah, let's say you have a, somebody at the wing that can really pass the ball. Well, it's your job to teach that particular individual, whether it's slow or fast or whatever you choose on tempo, to not turn the ball over and then do a DHO or three-person weave up top and get the ball out of his hands, but you know, teach that person how to transport the ball. All these drills that you can find on YouTube and all that with figure eights and seeing it all. But the most important thing is to reduce that so that that individual can carry the ball from A to B to C up the court and and safely give it to somebody else so that when you look at your stat sheet at the end, it's not just a blur of 2022 turnovers because you're not going to win at the highest level if you keep coughing that ball up because it all goes into shot attempts and you need those shot attempts in order to win games and so and they've got to be good shots and when you talk to aau or whatever and a kid comes from aau he looks at you like shot attempt and a good shot is a french definition uh, you know, and, and they don't know. Yeah. And so you have to re- re-reference them. It doesn't mean that the AAU coach is doing a bad job. I, I'm not one of those guys that thinks that AAU is a bad way to go. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I was a kid and somebody said I could play 40 or 50 games in the summer, I'd be all over that. You know, that's the fun part. But there's a responsibility of, the, you know, the next level coach to say, okay, what can he or she do? And how do we modify that so we can win basketball games? That's the job. It's not to bitch about or, or complain about, um, you know, the, the fact that they're an AAU kid. Everybody's an AAU kid now. Yep. Yep. I, I think that's interesting. I just went over um, the other day in practice uh, our, our Don Meyer shot chart, four three two one zero. And we went through about ten clips. Here's a four. Here's a two. Here's a here's a bad zero. Here's a good zero. Uh, that type of thing. And you're talking about shot selection and things like that. And and I coach my uh, I coached some AAU this past summer. And that's you know one of the things I emphasize to my kids. And they're they're incoming freshmen, so they still got a ways away before they're going to be you know heavily recruited uh, if they get recruited at all. But hey, you know 
the coaches are looking for players that can accept roles and and do the little things that the, the kids that can that can hit shots like crazy those are easy to find but there's not a lot of those as well either you know um there's a bunch of other roles that need to be filled within within programs that you have to and that there's a place for that you need to have in order for your team to function and function very well and that's those are some of the things that that I tried to sell as an AAU coach this summer to get these kids to understand that there's a bigger scope than well I only had four points therefore I didn't play very well this game well no actually you did play very well because you guarded the other team's best player for the 20 minutes that you were out there uh, you rebounded very well your team defense was really good and you didn't you didn't make any mistakes with the basketball you had you know you had maybe one turnover in 20 minutes. Coaches are going to notice those right. things, and 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 good coaches and good programs are really going to notice those things, and those are the type of players that they're going to pick up on, and and want to have to be part of their program. And I, I think that's a constant sell job that you have to have with players today. Right. There are two bullet points on what you just described, and I totally agree with you. And number one is roles. And I wish somebody had told me, you know, when I was rolling into Cal Lutheran. Uh, uh, that, you know, a coach should spend the majority of his time with the role players, not the star player. The star player is going to get his attention in so many ways, walking down the hallway, et cetera, that the role player doesn't. Plus, if you think of, of football in those terms, is your most important positions are on the offensive and defensive line. And there's no glory in, in that those positions, so to speak. And also, as you're depending on the screeners you're depending on maybe this kid is a, a terrible offensive player but he's a tremendous defender well find a place for him yep and i remember somebody i think it was the giants uh head coach now new york giants uh was in a presser and they asked him about you know his talent and he said he had noticed going in the building that that, that the conversation always was tilted towards what a kid or a young man or a man, a grown man, couldn't do. Mm -hmm. And he said, your job as a coach is to figure out what that kid can do and have him do it as many times as possible of whatever his or her strength is. That's coaching. Mm -hmm. And then the other part is, if somebody's averaging four points a game, but they're coming off, there's frustration, and all of a sudden there's bad shot after bad shot being taken, it's not hard to go find the parent that's responsible for that. Or, Absolutely. you know, let's say that they have a step-parent, or let's say that they have a brother that's in the stance. But yeah. you don't have to go too far to find out that somebody created the delusion within that young man's mind that this is basketball and everybody, you know, can, can huck and chuck the ball at, at the rim. No, that's, that, that you know, you're, that's not the, the road of a championship team. Mm -hmm. You know, it's balanced scoring, it's, it's, it's being responsible with the ball, et cetera, et cetera. But my point is, is that you, it doesn't have to be Gestalt-like where you just blast the kid with, with a 12-gauge with a verbally, uh, you know, taking a bad shot, but it's saying, okay, where's that coming from? Mm -hmm. And then really trying to isolate that young man or woman and, and have a conversation and ask questions first mm -hmm. and say, oh, you know, figure out what's going on because then you say, well, we're going to try these options and if she or he can create those options for you and you're taking notes off your conversation with them, you say, well, you said this, this or this, 
what can we do to get you to take better shots? Mm-hmm. You know, as far as that goes, because the stuff you're doing out there is insane and crazy and it's going to lead to us losing, <laughs> you know? And so then you, you, you have a we thing where as all leadership books now are talking about the model is horizontal. It's not vertical anymore. Mm-hmm. And so that, that calls for participation from a 14 year old. Mm-hmm. That's okay. Yeah. You know, it doesn't mean that what's coming out of their mouth is right. But when you do that kind of participation with leadership, you're going to get a better result than my way or the highway and the heavy hammer because yep. it just doesn't yep. work anymore because there's too many children that have been raised a different way. So instead of indicting all parents, which I'm not doing, uh, it's the hardest job anybody will ever have in their life without question and you, you you'll figure that out later everybody will but my point is not to indict anybody but to say okay what's our issue what are our challenges and here's a way that we're going to go about it systematically and not be passive aggressive with your own behavior mm-hmm. one of uh my best friends in coaching we actually grew up together he's been a a uh, highly successful coach in, in Iowa with girls basketball. Uh, he's on like a 56 game winning streak or something like that right now. Um, he, you know, a player, let's say a player takes a bad shot or makes a poor decision. And, and, and I think he does a marvelous job of handling this. He'll just say, Hey, what did you see there? And the player will say, well, I saw Becky here and I thought she was going to do this or whatever the scenario may be coach. And then he'll say, oh, okay, well, here's here's kind of what I was seeing. Um, if you take that one more dribble, and he kind of explains it like that, and it, and it, and it, you know, he's not, you know, being dictatorial with the correction. He's forcing the player to think about the other options that could have been there if they'd have done that and to have them process that through their own mind. And that's something I've really picked up on from him the last couple of years, Um watching him coach his teams. And I, and I think that's a, a great way to handle those corrections like we've been talking about here the last few minutes. Uh, just not, like you said, not in a vertical manner, but more of a horizontal manner and putting kind of the ball, no pun intended, in the player's court where they've got to, you know, answer as to why they were thinking what they were thinking and what they saw with the decision that they made, whether it be shot, pass, defensive rotation, whatever it may be, you know. So, um I think I think we're on the same wavelength there. So, um, wanted to ask you. Uh, I know reading is really important to you, and 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 uh, you're an avid reader. Uh, how much, um, you know, how is how has that affected your coaching philosophy? What are some go-to things if you have uh, two or three, uh, you know, recommendations that you might have? You threw out a couple of them here with Madeline Hunter and Frederick Jones. Uh, just where do you go to, uh, to, to read and to find good things? One of my little side podcasts on my channel is a book club podcast, uh, where every two or three weeks I'll, I'll put out a book club and a review of a book and the things that I liked from it. Um, so, uh, that's something I definitely wanted to talk about with you this morning as well, coach. So, uh, reading and, and having that, uh, help you become a better coach and, and why that's so important to you. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, once you select a job or you're fortunate enough to have a, a teaching dash basketball job, I mean, that's all consuming. And if you have a family, um, 
you know, you just feel like you're never doing enough to progress or improve and evolve as a teacher coach. And so I think it's really, really important. Best book, business book, you know, and I'll just get it to the top three or four. So some people don't have headaches because I, you know, people that read a lot, then they just throw stuff out in a cavalier <laughs> way and it makes everyone else feel bad. Yeah. I'm, I read like Braille. I mean, and I say that I, I, I read with crayons in my hands. I'm not a quick reader. I'm not a quick study. I'm not, I, I, I you know, I didn't have a high SAT score. I was just, my talent was uh, grinding. And so uh, there, I think that if you're coaching, you have limited time, then it's really important to not spread yourself so thin that when you uh, order off of Amazon or you're lucky enough to, to still go into a bookstore here and there, that you're like a laser because all those books make you feel inferior. And mm-hmm. that would never, whether I was doing a clinic or speaking at Don Myers uh, Academy um, in Nashville, and then later on, obviously, he, he made the move. But Or any clinic that I spoke to, I, I was always sensitive to the fact that uh, that I didn't want to throw 38 books out at people. Sure. I thought that that was, you know, look how smart I am and, and you need to be reading more. But uh, So I say that with a caveat. But I think that Ryan Holiday, Stillness is the Key, is a really important book for coaches that have a hectic life. And most coaches do because he hits on, uh, like Gladwell, Malcolm Gladwell is a mm-hmm. very special writer. I love his stuff. And, you know, whether it's the outliers or blank or the tipping point, all of that Gladwell background, the great author knows how to take really interesting stories or parables and then extrapolate one or two points from them and move on or transition to the next point. Ryan Holiday wrote a book, Obstacles Are the Way. And basically uh, puts out a formula uh, where when you have a problem, he's, he, he's talking more about methodology and how to deal with obstacles. And you can tackle it this way or that way. And you find that your better coaches are great problem solvers. But anyway, the book is called Stillness is the Key. And I'm going to stay on, on Ryan Holiday. And he wrote another book, Obstacles are the Way, that uh, those two books are, are very good. The best business book I've ever read in my life, and it still stands the time, test the time in sales, if that's your criteria, but it's Good to Great by Jim Collins. That book is absolute keeper, burn all my other books on the business side of things, and I would take that as number one. It's a red cover, but it's a dynamic book. It, it really has great examples he doesn't overwhelm you with how smart he is, and he put a lot of time into that that book. Now, I've, I've already just, in a staccato fashion, recommended three books. I think that's enough. I mean, and people say, well, you know, um, that book, um, you know, was put out over a decade ago. Well, you know, I, what we do as readers is we consume and go. Mm-hmm. And I think that any book that's worth its weight in gold to anybody that's listening to this podcast needs to be reread two or three times. Yep. And then you pull you pull things out. We run away from those books. We tell everybody it was a great book. But do we really understand what the author was trying to convey? And if you're going from book to book to book, I would suggest 
that that is, you know, a volume consumption without really enjoying your meal. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, you got to slow down and, and enjoy things and also learn. And so I'm not one of these guys who suggests that you go out and read 50 books a week or a, a, a year. I think that that's a fallacy. I, I think that as an English major, which I was, that the best instructors I had were the ones that really locked in to how to read and what the author was trying to say, because it's always in a second code. And when you're listening to players and whatever struggles they're having, they'll give you the over easy and tell you, but under, you have to listen very carefully because the player is saying something else. Mm-hmm. Example given, a role player says, you know, all I'm asked to do is scream and you know, uh, that's all I'm doing is just service, servicing somebody else. But what about me? And you say, okay, let's go there. And I want you to be incredibly selfish. And I want you to, to go that because great shooters are selfish people typically. And, and so I don't mean it in a sardonic way. And now you say, okay, uh, paint me a picture. And now the, the young man or young woman starts talking to you. And then you're going to find out what the issue is, you know, burr under the saddle. And I think that those conversations can make your season or break your season. If you don't have them, you're dead in the water. And if you have them, you're taking a chance with somebody that's 13 years old. And now you have a grizzled coach who said, I've been in this. I know what's going on. I think that when you approach each day and you say, I'm not very smart and I'm going to learn today because I'm going to ask questions and observe and keep my pie hole shut, I think you learn a lot more that way about your team than, you know, pontificating and lecturing to them. Yep. Yep. Um, that's really, that's so many good points. Uh, you, you were talking about the, the, the volume of books. The thing that popped into my uh, mind, uh, and I think this comes with experience, is the number of drills that you run. And you think, well, if I run all these different drills, I'm going to look smarter and we're going to do all these other things where it's like, no, take the same X amount of drills and find different variations off of the same drills and then perfect those, uh, those drills so that your, your team understands it and they understand exactly what you're looking for. And they see the philosophy that you're hammering at and therefore your team will grow faster by doing less. But really when you're doing less, you're doing more. Absolutely. Unequivocally. And if, if you said that, I mean, Dick Mata created a drill that ended up, you know, taking the country by storm and it was called cutthroat. Mm-hmm. And he brought it to a very famous camp on West, the Snow Valley basketball camp. Yep. It's still, still going and it's over 70 years old, et cetera. You know, it's just an unbelievable camp. And I was there as a boy, as a player, but that, that's another story. But what you're, you're hitting on is derivatives of a great drill. So when a coach finds a drill or he or she creates their own drill and, you know, you have an audience. Somebody, let's say a principal comes in and watches you do what you do. The simplest things are the best things. And, you know, the problem with YouTube and the Internet is that it makes you feel inferior because there's just so much information out there. Oh, we should be doing this. Oh, we should be doing that. No, really, what you should be doing is getting better with the detail and shortening uh, how much you're talking. 
put yourself on the stopwatch and then uh, make sure you have a ton of automatic drills within your own practice. If you're going to teach, teach on the front end, then do your station work uh, and teaching any dry run. Explain what either correcting what's not going well and then have them dry run it. And when you say dry run or school session, everybody thinks offense. Mm-hmm. But I think you got to take it to the other side of the line and you can dry run on defense out of a shell drill where you never go, rev them up to anything above a three speed. And they're able to ask questions. You give yourself 15 minutes and you get that one thing on, say, a V-back. There's a baseline drive. Obviously, you had to rotate over. That means that the opposite elbow defender had to drop down to the corner of the backboard. And we call that a Majera speed V-back. And then you walk them through it and the light bulbs go off. Mm-hmm. And then you're, you know, the automatic is two minute drill, five minute drill, where essentially you're not allowed to talk until there's a winner or a loser. So you have a two minute drill, a Superman drill, and you have to make 38 layups. The team does, and everybody's pressured by the clock, time, and score. Now they're done, and and they didn't get it done. Well, we have to go again, and they just already line up and do that. I call that an automatic, and then you could say, hey. Uh, everybody's leaking out so that when the wing's running down, uh, you're out of sync. And you can be ahead of the, your break, and it's like a good halfback in the NFL waiting for their offensive linemen to set the block. But, no, they hit the gap too quick. And so my point is, is that it's really important that you have automatics where you're not just talking and ruining the rhythm of a practice every day. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's a time to correct. There's a time to, you know, move on. But we call that a, you know, a, do you have something instituted where it's called a mistake recovery system where, you know, you say, my bad. Uh, and then you have a tap on there. Show me what you did wrong. OK, good. And then you move on and you go and then you, you, you everybody's participating, quote unquote, in that mistake. And that person has to be tapped you know, on the forearm or the back where you have the next closest person tap them and say, hey, you know, that's that's good. You figured it out. Good. Now you have everybody participating in the mistake because when it happens in a game and you have a bunch of head hangers, mm-hmm. not just because you haven't instituted any kind of a mistake recovery system. And it's all those little subtleties that make a huge difference in a practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've never thought of that, Coach. I got something new today. That is awesome. So, um, what's uh, what's your role going to be in Milwaukee? <laughs> um, I'm the oldest guy on the staff, so I need to act like it. <laughs> <laughs> I will uh, probably uh, do a, a, a lot of observing and note-taking and then uh, help with the uh, implementation of the zone. Um, and, uh, you know, they have a great staff, and Bud has had those guys intact since Atlanta, a lot of them, mm-hmm. and they're winning. So my job is to be quiet. Okay. <laughs> I'm getting paid to be quiet. No, <laughs> I, in all seriousness, I'm, 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 I'm there to be an emeritus, and to help uh, if there probably are some subtle things. Uh, I have old eyes. I can see things a lot quicker now 
than I did when I was younger. Mm-hmm. And I have a multitude of experiences where really it is to not disrupt or uh, impact in a, in a way where it's look at me. It's, it's, it's a, a journey of humility and maybe a tweak here and a tweak there that I suggest and then, then go away and sit and, you know, kind of not get in their way. They know what they're doing. And I think I'm, you know, kind of one of those, uh, quote unquote luxury coaches. <laughs> yeah. Do you, uh, do you, uh, is it, is it kind of a situation where, um, you know, obviously at that level, uh, everything's at a, at a different, uh, publicity rate at that type of thing. Is it, uh, let's bring in a fresh set of eyes to try and pick up those one, two, three things that we need to do to get over that proverbial hump as well. And you, you talked about how Coach Bud, uh, you know, he's from the Popovich tree, very loyal, uh, going to keep his guys together. Uh, uh, but let's bring in somebody that's going to kind of question what we're doing or take a look at it from a different angle than maybe uh, what we've been looking at for X amount of time. I think so. Yeah, well stated. And there's an element of that. And there's a, you know, I'm a, they, yes. And so I would say the quick is there. And then there's a difference between saying something and suggesting something. Mm-hmm. And so my, my job is to create a smorgasbord, if you were, where people can pick and choose, uh, and in particular, but, and you can say, Hey, nah. And my job is just to can move off of that and go to the next thing and, and really help with tweaks. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's, it, it definitely is that they have enough mechanics. They have a great leader in Bud. Uh, they know what they're doing. So again, it's, it's about uh, a little bit of a flow and maybe a dance step here or there that would be helpful for either an individual. It could be a staff member or, or what have you. And, and that'll be my job. How excited are you to work with, you know, perhaps the, you know, at, at, at the very least one of the two or three best players in the world in Giannis Antetokounmpo? Well, uh, I, that's always exciting. I was uh, worked Magic Johnson's camp for 10 years and got to know him uh, because of that journey. And, uh, you know, uh, Kimba Walker, I got to coach Kimba, you know, at Charlotte and, and, and work with him. And my point is, is that, that uh, you know, they, the, the things that Giannis does and, and how he moves through this season in particular is to understand the pressure that's on him. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, and that's Bud's job is to help him continue to evolve and get better, e.g. His, his outside shot. Everybody knows that. But at the same time, um, I would say that I'm more tilted towards helping somebody who doesn't get a lot of minutes, but has, you know, he gets something or he doesn't get anything and to be an ear or be empathetic or whatever in observation, because all of those guys have, you know, their roles. And so my job would be maybe to see something that would be helpful to let somebody who's actually working with whomever on that roster that could be helpful for them. Mm-hmm. And that's my job. And that's staying in my lane because yeah. they know what they're doing. So yeah. 
again, I, I know why I'm going in there. And it's, it's, it's again, uh, silence can be powerful. Again, back to Ryan Holiday, stillness is the key. You can do a lot by keeping your mouth shut. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then saying the right thing at the right time, and it has much more impact than if you're just rattling on all the time. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, Coach, uh, wanted to, to throw something out there for our listeners here, one of our sponsors. Uh, if you want to have the opportunity to have a hands-on mentor to help you hone your craft as a basketball coach, look no further than teachhoops.com, a place where coaches go to get better. Coach Steve Collins shares his three decades of coaching knowledge with his subscribers through resources like podcasts, one-on-one mentoring sessions, and much more with teachhoops.com. Go to teachhoops.com backslash A-P-A-A-N, that's a pen and a napkin, where subscriptions start at $34.99 a month. When you sign up, you get a 14-day free trial, so combine teachhoops with a pen and a napkin to help you, to help make you be the best coach that you can be. Um, and then, Coach, about this time... Uh, you, you, you referenced Don Meyer. We talk a lot about Don Meyer on this podcast. Uh, we have our Don Meyer quote of the day for our interview podcast here. And I, I always leave it open to my guests to comment on the Don Meyer quote. So if you would like to follow up with this, feel free. Um, the Don Meyer quote of the day is, coldly evaluate your performance. Yeah, I would just say that self-evaluation and, and critiquing yourself is really important. Uh, one is you want to be balanced. You know, John Wood, and don't be too hard on yourself and, and talk about the self-talk, talk about the things you're doing well, but also is that whether you're using an outside source to maybe nudge you to a different place, uh, don't be afraid to, you know, say, hey, this is something I need to get better on because that's the first step to improving. And I think Don Meyer was all about that. I had a relationship with him, and and it goes all the way back to Nashville when he was a Lipscomb coach, Mm -hmm. but it also goes back to Snow Valley. He was a coach there, and I was uh, actually a camper. (laughs) (laughs) He was coaching. So, so, uh, yeah, anyway, I think it's an apropos quote, and it's the only way that you can really improve. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, Coach, I got three things that I wanted to drill down on with you here specifically. And number one on my list here, uh, you were a head coach in the NBA for a year with Charlotte. Um, You've been uh, assistant coach at, at, at multiple stops here now. I think one of the most fascinating things about the NBA that you do a lot more of at that level than any other level, especially, and, and most of my listeners here are high school coaches. Um, but your your ATO philosophy, your out of timeouts, your after timeouts philosophies, and tips, and, and because you have so many, between seven timeouts a game plus the media timeouts and and all of these other things, uh, it is it is such an area in the NBA that is at such a high high influence and a high level of of execution on both sides of the ball. And I was just wondering if you could go through some of your philosophies on after timeouts and and what you're looking for and what you're looking at. Obviously, every game to game, you know, from game to game, it's different depending on your opponent. Uh, but just what have you learned in that regard, and, and how have you uh, developed your um, your 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 coaching philosophy when it comes to after timeouts execution? Well. There's a, again, that's something that all coaches, we try to be better at. And, um, 
early on, one of the best that ever lived at, at coaching into timeouts and out of timeouts is Lenny Wilkins. And some will know that name, some won't. But Great player, my great point coach. Is, yeah. Right. And the, the, the salient comment he made uh, that I was able to peel off of him was that the game of basketball goes in eight-point streaks. So whether it's a streak of six and a, a, somebody calls a timeout or you call a timeout, either, uh, you know, because something's not going right with the momentum, but your job is either to enhance the momentum and keep it running because you see something that, that's working or it's not working and you have to make adjustments. The NBA is a, a, is a league of adjustments and it's a league of analytics. And so they're taking the your overall aggregate of your timeouts and they're saying, okay, you scored or you stopped your opponent from scoring. So let's say your opponent takes a timeout and he or she has a play that they're coming out in and that let's say that they're going backwards. Well, your job is to get a stop out of that timeout, mm-hmm. you know? And so you, you, you kind of have to say, okay, what are we going to do regardless of whether we know what play and who they're going to go to? Uh, which most of the time in the NBA you do know. But I would say that as a high school coach, you don't have that luxury. But your job in the simplest way is to stop that score. you know. And a lot of good coaches that are elite-level coaches have two to three actions you know, that, are, that, that come down uh, that just second. Um, so I think it's, it's really important that you're able to do that. Um, does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. There for a second. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As, as far as that goes. Um, did you go into uh, how much of that was, um, here's here's my list of, let's say, 15 ATOs, and on let, and let's say we're talking offensive side of the ball. Uh, tonight against Denver, uh, here's the two or three we're really going to emphasize. Um, and then, you know, Thursday night against Chicago, here's two, three, four that we're going to use, but here's our base group of 12 to 15 things we're going to do after timeouts or that type of thing. How did you guys, how do you, how do you, how do you organize that at that level? Well, that's a whole lot I, at that level. What you're trying to do is that what, what the, the older coaches are doing in the NBA is taking a, a derivative of, or let's say that they're going to run a zipper with a mid pick and roll. Everybody runs that out of a timeout in the NBA on side OB. So they're, and they'll, they'll, they'll say, okay, we're going to run our zipper, uh, but we're going to slip the mid pick and roll and you're going to go set a screen and our shooters in the corner. So now you, you, you know, you run the zipper cut, which is a small is being picked on strong side from an elbow screen. And now the guard gets the ball, and now here comes your five who, who sets a high pick and roll, and you drag that dribble across laterally, and he slips it, and he goes and screens the ball side corner at, for a shot. And, or uh, he slips it again for a lob to the tip of the rim. I'm just giving you a generic thing. Sure. And, and what, the, what they're doing in the NBA is the, right on the grease board, no scout from Miami knows this, and you trick it up, or you just add or take away something mm-hmm. so that you can get an isolation, and that's what's going on. 
And the other thing is, it's really important that whatever you're doing uh, in that timeout offensively is bulletproof, meaning that it works against the zone too. Mm-hmm. So see, that's why you probably have three or four plays that are really good like that that work against man and zone so they can continue to run it and all of a sudden they don't they see a two three and all of a sudden they're going, Well coach, that was a man play and so it's important you let your team know and, and work on it and practice it uh, before you get into the game. Yeah. The other thing I would say is when the game's on the line, it's really important that you have three nicknames for plays that you've worked on that you've never shown except for that situation. So they're called game winners. And so let's say that you call it lightning. And now they're coming back to the huddle and they're saying, hey, coach, let's run lightning. You know, they already know that this is the play to win the game because this stuff about pulling stuff out of your pocket and creating a new play with, say, 22 seconds to go on the clock or 20. Yeah, and and you're trying to devise some play. uh, That's a mistake. Yeah. You know, because they, they, it needs to be, but don't use it and have two or three of those in your pocket mm-hmm. so that you can just go, yeah, well, yeah, we got that. So now nobody's hyperventilating. You may even sub a player in that hasn't, you know, been, but it's a great screener, you know, and can pound the glass when the shot's taken, but they haven't played a lot, but they're in for that particular play. That's pretty exciting if you're a player who's not going to get a lot of time. Yeah, yeah. I've always wondered, Coach, with all those timeouts that you guys have at the NBA level, do you ever get a timeout and you just really don't have anything to say? Yeah, and I think that you've seen Kerr do it more. He's received pub for it, but Popovich has done it, and uh, Krzyzewski's done it, and high school coaches have done it, is grab the grease board and give it to a player. Mm-hmm. You know, and put them out there and or an assistant. Because sometimes you don't have you know, I haven't found that to be the case for me personally as far as that. But I like to do that because you want to get that we buy-in. And so over time, you know, you might even say to somebody who has had four fouls and he's not, you want to keep he or she engaged in the game. And you could say, hey, you know, uh, uh, Marty, hey, I, I'm going to give you the grease board. We're going to bang a timeout here in 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. You know, you take you take the front end of the timeout, mm-hmm. and 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 all of a sudden, if you're telling somebody they're going to do that, that's like when players come out. And the methodology of the classroom is that you try never to use a singular name. Hey, Kerr, or you know, you say, Hey, uh, Curry. You, you say, Hey, we're gonna, you know, you, you you needed to do this, and you're not doing this. As opposed to saying, uh, and this is what great teachers do, is they say, hey, what's going on out there? Or I'm going to ask a question to all of you. So put your listening ears on. And now what you've done is, you know, you've got one of your five that's going, oh, God, I hope you didn't call on me. But my point is you get a heightened sense of listening when you don't isolate on a single name on the front end of the timeout. You can always go to that mm-hmm. and say, hey, Duncan. We need you to do this, but you do that just before the timeout is finished. But at the beginning, you don't want to, you know, like relieve everybody and those bench warmers, so to speak, uh, that are that are in the game, you know, or, or that you want to keep them interested and keep them engaged. That's why 
uh, we have certain responsibilities for certain players that we call them spotters. And as you get higher in the NBA, you know, that's harder to do, but Mm -hmm. it's doable, but you do it in a different way. And you could bend down on one knee and be in an NBA game and then say, Kemba's there and say, hey, Kemba, what's going on with that high pick and roll? And he said, hey, coach, they're really hard hedging that. I said, well, what if we lift one of our wings so you don't have to bump into that hard hedge? You just take it over the top. And then I'm going to, and then on a misdirection, we're going to bring our opposite wing up uh, there and you just throw it from sideline to sideline and we're going to bring a pick in for Beal. You know, what do you think of that, Kimba? And he, and now you've got him engaged in solution thinking and now he's locked into the game. And if you're constantly doing that, what you're saying is to your players, I don't know everything. And that's okay to say because when I was raised when a coach said something you listened and you did but there was no place for that back and forth and now you see it on the tv all the time where a player will be in on a timeout and doing certain parts of that timeout if not the whole timeout mm-hmm. especially if you have a good team yeah yeah the, the better the team the more freedom you have to yep. exercise those type of things you know right yeah right and, Marty, I would say this, is that when you go to clinics or you're listening to YouTube, if you don't go to clinics anymore, fine. But my point is, a lot of times, you know, the coach thinks he's the, the font of all knowledge and has all the answers. Absolutely. And not. I think that yeah. if you're out there listening to this podcast, it's really important to understand there are going to be times where you don't have the answer and it's okay to be vulnerable. Just don't be you know, like trying to play the mistake card every day. Well, my bad, and I made a mistake. And the players will get tired of that, too. you got to own your, your own stink, but you also can say, hey, you know, we're going to be inclusive, and there are going to be times where don't be surprised. Because, again, if you're parenting, and some of the best solutions don't come from you, but they come from your child. Mm-hmm. You know, where yep. because you have this back and forth communication, you say, yep. I can't see how, now what's going on here. And the damnedest things will come up where you go, I wasn't even aware I was doing that. Mm-hmm. And that's the same thing as coaching, you know. Yep. So I, I, I think in those timeouts, getting back to it, is that I think it's really important that, you, that there's a formula and everybody sits in their same spots. I think that's important. Well, it guards you to the left your centers in the middle and your forwards are to the right. And then they, then as subs are happening, they know that uh, the forwards are always to the right. Your center's right in the middle. And if you wanted your point guard in a different spot, but I think it's important that there's that organized timeout. We don't have to worry about trying to find a player mm-hmm. or find out where your guards are, you know, or your wings or whatever. I mean, in the breakdown drills now, Marty, they've gone to point guard breakdown. They've gone to wings breakdown. They've gone to, you know, your five or your four and your bigs breakdown, and now you have three separate components. When we did it, it was always just guard forward work. Yep. You know, and that's kind of evolved into more specific. And, and, and so my point is you have to have your timeouts organized when you're going to hydrate, when the towels are going to be there, you know, and really be detailed about that without being anal. I mean, you can do it, but you don't have to be enslaved by your organization. Yep. Yep. How often, coach, uh, do you ask your guys, hey, what do you want to run here? Um, what do you what are you seeing? Uh, here's, you know, 
right, we can go. Let's say we're on defense. We can go blue or we can go green here. What do you guys want to run? Um, is, is that stuff that you try I to, to empower that. your team yeah. to do as well? I love doing that in timeouts with defense mm-hmm. because you know it, it, you're not going to have a whole uh, lot of choices from a defensive standpoint. Yep. And so it's, it, I find it's easier to introduce that idea on the defensive side of the ball. Um, hey, we've been hard hedge in the high pick and roll. If we're going to, what should we do if we're not going to do that? And everybody in unison usually goes, switch it. Okay. Are we going to switch the switcher now so we don't get a mismatch? Or are we, we going to peel that? Or what are we going to do uh, in terms of getting that small off the big? You know, and now all of a sudden they go, "Hey, let's do it!" And no, let's not switch it. Let's just dead front the big, uh, create the mismatch, and we're going to cheat on the help side block and come over. And if they throw it in there, we're doubling. That's good stuff right there. Mm-hmm. And but getting them engaged, I think early in the season, players don't want that responsibility. When you come back and the money's on the line, they want you to take charge. They. I ask players after the fact of that, and I'll say, Coach, in those situations, we want you to do it. You know, but as the team gets better and better, you can do some of that and go that direction. But I would warn coaches to be careful doing that. It's just like when coaches, when they're young, they take a vote on discipline. You know, a young man or woman does something wrong, you know, and so I'll leave it up to the players to vote. That's a coward's way out. The head coach has to take the bullet on that, has to make the hard call on the discipline. Players don't want to discipline each other. Yep. That's a big mistake. Yep. You know, and I've made that mistake. That's why I know. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, you get all the highfalutin stuff about that. But my point is, a lot of times the players are tired. They've been working their rear ends off. They come back to the timeout, and they just want a clear, concise thing. I, it's the same thing if you're riding with your wife and you say, hey, you know, where are we going to eat? She says, I don't know. I said, where's that restaurant? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we're going to, I don't know. But my point is a lot of times if you say, okay, we've got this choice or this choice, and I think this, they'll say, hey, yeah, let's go get Italian. If you put it out there, but now she's a part of the decision. Same with players. A lot of times they just are hungry. They just want to be fed, and it's the same thing that I, I think you can overdo that as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, Coach, you got time for one or two more things? Sure, I'm in. All right, in. awesome, awesome. This has been a terrific conversation. Um, mental preparation for players. Uh, that, that's something that uh, I, I've seen on your Twitter handle. And by the way, uh, your Twitter handle is unbelievable, at Coach Mike Dunlap. Uh, so many good things on there, Coach. Uh, I, I've cramped up writing down uh, a lot of the stuff that you that you put on there. Uh, just just do it so well. Uh, but one of the things you talk about is is mental preparation for players, and uh, yeah, just how do you get how do you get your kids and your and your now adults now that you're back in the NBA uh, mentally prepared, ready to play, and and then along with that, how do you get your guys to play so stinking hard? Well, I think it's really important that, uh, like in parenting, the class, they say it's not if you have a specific formula, 
It's just that you have introduced it. Because everybody's worried about being wrong about the mental preparation part of it. And mental preparation, if you look at any psychological book, you talk to any uh, sports psychologist, is about routine. It's really important that that topic gets introduced early on. And obviously, preparation creates confidence. There's no other way around it. And repetition is a big part of that. And let's take meditation. If, let's say, at the beginning of each practice, you only picked three minutes and you had everybody close their eyes in a circle and you were sitting, and then you go to a stretch from there on the... uh, from the sequencing on that, to introduce meditation and breathing is so, so important. The deep breath, the shallow breath, et cetera, et cetera. And so at the beginning, they're not very good at it. At the beginning, it seems hokey to them. But if you're stubborn about it, and let's say that you're stacking up three minutes and that's all you dedicated to it, then add the math of all the practices and you'll say, okay, we spent say 207 minutes on the mental side of this game and teaching a player how to quiet down and control their adrenaline. How many coaches really spend that time in that specific way? I think it's a lot, but I think there are coaches out there that don't want to tamper with it because they've never really delved into that world from a psychological standpoint. And again, it can be overdone. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, what you're trying to create is what Pete Carrill, the smart pick from the strong, the Pete Carrill book. Yep. And it's a great book, but if someone said boil it down to what Carrill was, was driving at, it was a, a toughness, a clarity of play, and also is appealing to the intellect, which Princeton all of that stuff. Kirill was about being smart, you know, and hey, you know, creating a smartness and, and a cardinal sin in his program was to make mistakes that were done without thought. It was, the mistake wasn't the problem. It's the fact that we have a set of rules and you keep violating our set of rules. Now you go back to mental preparation. The most important part is if your team is mentally tough, it's because the head coach and the staff are mentally tough and you'll find a fragility and your team's fragile because you keep changing your rules you keep backing off clarity it's confusing and the more you do the less you can be clear about that's why when you find the happiest people on the face of this earth there are people that are in touch with nature they're in touch with some spiritual element would be it religion or what have you and you can go into that but the simplicity with detail and when you find somebody that's happy in their own shell and who they are, it's because they know who they are. Does your team know who you are? Are your habits reinforcing or are you cre- allowing for bad habits to enter your gym and stay that way? And so this preparation thing mentally is about going in with simple demands and also reinforcing the power of the brain the power of intellect, capture the mind and the body will follow. Capture the body and the mind will be all over the gym first if you just think you're going to be physically tough. And that's why in the Navy SEALs, 
they say, hey, those guys that are five foot six, five foot eight, that kind of look like a wet drip over in the corner, oftentimes are the ones who make it through because they're they're simple, they're tough, they understand how that they're going to get broken down, but they know how to be resilient and come back. And it's the beautiful looking Cadillac, guy six three, got every muscle known to mankind, mm-hmm. but is fragile between his ears mm-hmm. you know and, yep. and if you talk to those guys and you say okay you'll never be able to take a picture of the people that will actually make it through at the end of this journey and it's the damnedest look and it's you know that my point is is that you have to go back and you have to have a simple system where let's say it's game day you're going to meet for five minutes somewhere or you're going to be in your locker room and you take five minutes of quiet and let's say you didn't have any music, you didn't have any voices, whether it was Oprah or, or you know, this person or that person doing a sequential meditation, but you just, and you're locked in on your breathing. And it's nothing hokey to say, hey, take it down deep, uh, exhale, take it down deep, exhale. And, and now you as the coach say, hey, tonight we want to do these two things on offense these two things on defense and you spend five minutes in a calm way. No, you know, in the NBA, they call it the whiteboard. You go to the whiteboard and let's say you're an outsider, you go, you wouldn't know if that's hieroglyphics. You don't know what that is on that whiteboard because it's a thousand things. My point is is that that's kind of for management, in my opinion. You know, it's preparation. you're, You're trying to reinforce paying a guy a certain amount of money. But then you go to the players and you say, hey, what do you remember about what's on that whiteboard? (laughs) (laughs) Right. And my my, my point is it doesn't have to be all show. Uh But whatever you do mentally and you really want to think about it, talk to your staff about it, you want to make it routine and then just really focus in it. Like the example given, John Wooden used to have them circle up before they went to their three lines and stretch. And he said he really didn't care what the stretches were as long as they were quiet and they were stretching. But then he would go to a three lines before he actually got into movement. They would work for two minutes on shadow shooting with no ball. And that's where he might make a universal or a common denominator comment about getting the left leg back, right leg forward, left leg forward, right leg back in a stride pivot all right, up we're going to go to load up on that one foot and then come down in a balanced way. Lock your elbows, snap your wrist, keep your head still by keeping your eyes on the target. Anything that he wanted to talk to, but really what he was doing was he was using what they call a funnel effect. He was going from broad focus to fine focus by doing staging and using his voice in that little shadow shooting for two minutes. That is mental preparation. And it's getting them ready to calm down, to be precise in the practice and setting the stage. Because when kids come to your gym, a lot of times they've had a thousand things come at them. They've had a lot of stimulus. And your job is to take this big funnel of their day and narrow it down, you know, in a certain sequential way and do it in short order. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be anything fancy, but if you don't take that into factoring into why you had a good practice, bad practice. Well, everybody knows one fly in the ointment can ruin a practice. Oh, yeah. And a lot of times it's the head coach that's the fly because he gets pissed and then all of a sudden has a fit 
and things were going okay, but maybe you wanted one more thing. I've ruined more practices than I've helped. Mm-hmm. I will, I will promise you that because my my own counsel was I had to be mentally ready, to be sharp to go into this practice and not overreact to a mistake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that you got to know as a coach, and that's the kind of the art of coaching. Uh, you know, there's just times where you've got to have that George Costanza. You know, I'm out. You know, and I know, yep. I know it's time to walk away. Um, I've, I've I've hit my point, and and let's get out of here on a high note. And uh, Paul yeah. West, Paul West, did. again, uh, I, you know, you have a cadre of things that people say, and he said, "Be bold, be brief." And if you think about your teaching, you want to be bold and you want to be brief. And you're always fighting for brevity as opposed to these long sermons, which, again, will lose your audience and your ruling. And I've done a fair amount of that on this podcast, by the way. Oh, no, <laughs> Coach, this has been terrific. This has been awesome. Yeah. So, um, Coach, this, like I said, this is this has been a, an awesome, awesome morning here. We're, we're taping this on uh, Friday morning, the day after Thanksgiving. I know your life has to be really chaotic as, as you're getting ready to transition into, uh, you know, moving halfway across the country. So I can't thank you enough uh, for your time this morning and, and all the information that uh, folks are going to get from this podcast because I've got a couple of pages here worth of notes that I'm selfishly going to take for myself here. Um, so I, I just can't thank you enough would, would for you your time. Would you do me a favor? Yeah, you mentioned Mike, Mike Powers. And yep. just make sure you, you tell him that I said hello. We got along famously, and he was a load of fun. He's a lot of fun, in my opinion, and he's, you know, inquisitive, and that, you know, obviously his record speaks for itself, but just make sure you tell him that there's this guy out here wandering around the streets that said hello. <laughs> I surely could do that. <laughs> Mike and I are still very close today, and, uh, yeah. um, you know, I am. I would not have the coaching career that I've had without Mike, with, with, without a doubt. Without a doubt, I would not have been able to do the things that I have done and be in the positions that I've been in without Mike in my life, and he's been a dear friend. So I will definitely do that, um, Coach. That that is that is that I'll, I will do that right when we get off the phone here. So no problem, man. Uh, right. Thanks, Marty. They're great questions, well thought out, and obviously you coached, and I can tell. And uh, it's always a privilege. Um, I just I just love sharing. And like I said, is that I don't have any answer, but I have a potpourri of things from other great coaches that I can put out there on display for somebody to just come by and pick that and then go about their merry way uh, with their philosophy, which is much more important than mine. Mm-hmm. And, and that they can, you know, enjoy this wonderful game. And the most important thing is enjoy the players that they're teaching because those are lifelong memories. It's why we're all in it, and it's a blast, and it's, it, it should be fun. There are some things that aren't so much fun, like losing, but at the same time, there are lessons inside that losing that are delightful. It's how kids grow, and none of this is life-threatening. I think we take ourselves too seriously sometimes of where we're going in our career, and we define ourselves by our wins and losses. I get that that's a measurement, but really, the older people in, in, in both female and male that have been in this business a long time are, are great survivalists. They, they bounce back. 
And they really, you can tell that there's a twinkle in their eye that they've loved their journey because of the kids, the players, the young men, the young women. Uh, they're, they're the beginning, the middle, and the end of why we do what we do. Mm-hmm. And all you have to do is just know that it's dynamic and it's fun. And I just encourage everybody to do it. Just love this game and I'll love you back. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Coach, I hope you've Thanks enjoyed your time on the pod. It's It's been a terrific I conversation been, for myself. It's been so. an honor. Yeah, so. You take care of yourself. All right. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. And good luck this year. Thank you. Yep. Uh, again, we want to thank uh, Mike Dunlap, uh, assistant coach with the Milwaukee Bucks here today for being on the pod. Uh, we also want to thank our sponsors, uh, COSAC Chiropractic here in Omaha. Uh, teachhoops.com. Subscribe to teachhoops.com. Go to teachhoops.com backslash A-P-A-A-N. Uh, a pen and a napkin there, 14-day free trial. Uh, follow us on Twitter, a pen and a napkin. Try to put out daily coaching tidbits on the handle. Download, rate, and review the podcast here. It's on iTunes or SoundCloud. So give us five stars so we can move up in the rankings here. And of course, if you have any questions, comments, suggestions, or ideas, email me at a pen and a napkin at gmail.com. What a conversation this morning with Mike Dunlap, uh, one of the best coaches in America. I'm thoroughly convinced of that. He's a very modest guy, but wow, uh, that w- that one just blew me away, folks. That was that was an awesome discussion that we just had here for the last hour and 20 minutes. So I hope you get as much out of it as I did. So coaches, as always, let's stay safe, let's pray for peace, and let's be sure to hone our craft one day at a time.